The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Welcome into episode 31 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. We are doing something called an anthology on the Miami Heat, Miami Heat Stories. The first episode, first volume, was with Jason Jackson. You can find that in our library if you subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or any of our other platforms. Last week, we taped an episode with Eric Reed, the play-by-play man for the Miami Heat, the voice of the Miami Heat. It was so good that we decided to break it into two parts. So we have grabbed Eric for another episode today to put this up for you guys. And then the last episode, we closed with about 2005. We, we kind of got into the 2005-2006 season a little bit, but mostly talked about the early days of the Heat, the transition with Pat Riley bringing in Alonzo Mourning, Tim Hardaway, and those teams, and then the drafting of Dwayne Wade in 2003 and everything that that meant. And we're going to start today, though, with Eric on that 2005-2006 team because I covered that team, Eric, and it was one of the more unusual teams I've ever covered because – To have a season that had so much turmoil, where you had so many personalities on that team, and then additionally, the coaching change where Pat Riley steps back in for Stan Van Gundy, Shaq missing a lot of time that season, integrating him back in, and then that sort of remarkable playoff run where they have to go through Detroit again, and the way that Dwayne Wade played during that entire run. What sticks out to you most about that season, Eric? Well, you know, I I, I think... First of all, it's great to be on with you guys again. Uh, you, you conjure up your memories of that team, and I want to start with that coaching staff. With Pat Riley back as head coach, you had Bob McAdoo, Keith Askins, you know, the great Ron Rossi and the original head coach in franchise history is now back as an assistant, and Eric Spolstra on his rise up the coaching ranks. So might have been the best coaching staff for a franchise that has made it very routine to have an outstanding coaching staff. But then you look at some of the veterans that, that came over to, to that team, Jason Williams, Jason Capono, Antoine Walker, Michael Doliak, Shandon Anderson, Gary Payton, James Posey. I mean, that's the infantry guys. They were the role players that, that surrounded Shaq and, and D Wade. And of course, Alonzo Mourning back on that team. And that's one of the first things that struck me about that 05-06 team. First of all, you're coming off a season where you had your first year with Shaq, 59 wins. We touched on it in, in our first interview, how close that team came to playing for a championship. A Dwayne Wade rib injury, up 20 in Game 5, really compromised the Heat's chances. He, we talked about he, he didn't play in Game 6, played uh, impaired and not effective in, in Game 7. So this team had a lot of motivation coming back, and, boy, they put some pieces around it. But when you had Alonzo Mourning and Shaquille O'Neal both wearing heat uniforms, it struck me in many ways. First of all, Zoe was, you know, they went 1-2 in their college draft, Shaq out of LSU and Zoe out of Georgetown. For me, guys, I'm not comparing them skill-wise to Wilt and Bill Russell, but similar skills. I mean, Shaq was the Wilt, and Alonzo Mourning was the Bill Russell type, the defender, the warrior, not as much natural talent as Wilt or as Shaq. And Shaq was this dominant personality. Zoe coming back for his second and final encore performance with the Heat. Uh, it was magical to see those two on the same team. And, and the way Zoe accepted that role. And, of course, if you go all the way to June 20th, 06, you know, probably the best 13-minute performance in NBA Finals history. I, I remember making the call, you know, nobody wants this more than Alonzo Mourning. And of all the things about the first championship, I was happy on so many levels for so many people. And I would say happiest for Lonzo Mourning, that he was a player on that first championship team, and for Ron Rossi, the founding father of, of Heat Head Coaches, who built the foundation under this franchise when wins were scarce, but uh, a tone was set. And for Ron to be a part of that first championship team, that was true uh, basketball justice. 
Well, we can't talk about those finals without bringing up Dwayne Wade's performances over the course of those six games. It's kind of remarkable when you kind of think about how in sort of the modern NBA or just in general discussion about basketball, you don't really think of players still on their rookie deal or players so young into their careers summoning those performances and those big of moments. And yet Dwayne Wade, it was, it's kind of easy to forget that it was just his third year in the league when he's turning in these ridiculous performances. Now, if we were doing this podcast in Dallas, there might be conversations about the officiating in that series. But just in, in general, the level that you saw Dwayne Wade rise to over the course of those playoffs and over the course of those finals. Well, you know what? That, that was his first step towards being a Hall of Famer and one of the great players in the history of the game because, you know, it's when you do it there that the whole world sees and notices and remembers. So, you know, in that series against Dallas, I don't know if Heat fans will ever see a better finals performance than, than Dwayne Wade put on. And in the four wins, he averaged 40 points per game. He was that good and on the game's greatest stage. And, you know, one of my favorite, favorite moments Remember, we lose the first two games at Dallas. I mean, listen, there's so much that we could talk about. Remember going down 0-2 at Dallas in those first two games? And they were competitive games, but Dallas had their way. Two double-figure wins, okay? And by the time we left Dallas, I mean, they were already planning the parade route. Uh, I mean, I, that's for real. That, there was a story in the Dallas paper that, you know, they had gotten together to discuss the championship parade route. And this is a famous story. When the Heat come back, to practice after returning to Miami before game three, Pat Riley writes on the board, June 20th, 2006. And nobody knows what that means in that locker room. And, and Pat said, see that date? He goes, that's the date we're going to win, win the NBA championship. And that was four games from, from where they stood. And my gosh, that's exactly what happened. But, you know, when you think my favorite game of that series, I know game, game six, would, everybody would think that would be it. My favorite game was game three, because if the Heat lose that game, the series is basically over. And Miami won the game 98-96. to 96. Wade had 42 points and 13 rebounds, okay? But what it took to win that game was a defensive play on the final play of the game. It's my favorite. I got a couple of favorite plays defensively or, or overall. This is one of my top two defensive plays in the history of the franchise when Dallas is down two and they get an inbounds. I think it was Dirk that threw the inbounds. It was a near-perfect lob at the rim for Josh Howard. Wade jumps up in the air with him and deflects it away with two-tenths of a second left. So one of the great performances in finals history took a, a deflection at the rim with, you know, as time ran out to win that game. So it was a superhuman effort, and basically that's what it takes to be an NBA champion. One of the things that I remember uh, about that, too, and I remember having a conversation with Pat Riley about this, about what he remembers, was Dwayne missing the two free throws at the end of that last game and having to sweat it out. You know, it really did go down to the end of that situation. And, and you mentioned Alonzo, not only one of the most memorable performances you've seen in that short a stint, but also one of the most memorable uh, post-finals press conferences. Uh, I remember, I think Alonzo was asked two questions, and he talked for over 10 minutes about everything that it meant to him. And then that post-game the Alonzo locker, morning that I know. <laughs> and, uh, and, and that you know, post game. You know what? Well, I want to correct my record. Too. I think it might have been game five that I'm taught that, that the Wade play would have happened. That was the 101 100 overtime win. So I, I think that was a play because Howard could have won it for Dallas. Yep. So I don't, I want to set the record straight on that. I think that was game five. But, but after game six, yes. I, I, I remember that locker room and, and you know, the storyline during that whole postseason was what was with that bowl in the middle of the locker room yeah. that, that they kept bringing on the road with them and the media you know, kept having to walk around and it was covered up all the time. Did you have any idea? Because we, we didn't find out until after the Heat won and, and all of a sudden all these 15 strong cards were sprayed all over the locker room, doused in champagne. Did you have any idea what was in that bowl? I didn't at the beginning. I think we were all, it was a mystery to us all. I don't recollect exactly when, when I got clued into what that was about, but somewhere along the way in the championship run. And it, it was one of those Pat Riley bonding, you know, motivational things. It was all in. It was everybody together. Uh, everybody put, you know, what was most important in their life and their family in that bowl. And, you know, Pat, since that time, has handed out these cards and it's a laminated card with a picture of a championship trophy on it, and it says only one thing on it, forever. And, man, if you're holding one of those cards, you are a very fortunate guy to have played or been a part of that team. 
Pat gave me a card a long time ago from, from that championship. I, I'm holding it right now. I just took it out of my wallet. It's cracked, but I'm going to keep it with me for forever. I mean, that's, that's what a championship does for you. Just go back to game six in, in Dallas, because mm-hmm. I think that, that that's something I'd like to, sh- to share with you guys. And, and, you know, it goes back in, in Pat Riley's memories of experiences. One of his Nick teams went to Houston for game six and seven, and they went there with a 3-2 lead, and, and you know what happened. They got beat in game six, and then they got beat in game seven, and they lost a, a heartbreaking way to lose a championship. So now, a decade later, more than a decade, whatever time passes, now Pat's in this position where he's taking his Heat team to Dallas for game six and possibly a game seven with the Heat up three games to two, and now the mentality of how he's going to approach that with, with the 06 Miami Heat team seeking their first ever championship and you know there's still a a big poster picture in the in the corridor of championship alley that says one suit one shirt one tie and it's cliche it's become a slogan but very real uh, in terms of pat's approach to game six with a 3-2 lead and his message was he's only taken clothes for one game and now the team's in the hotel in dallas getting ready to leave the hotel to go to the arena for game six and think about this little detail. How do you deal with your team? If you, you know, you don't know if there's going to be a game seven or not. Basically, here's what he said to him. Bags on the bus, check out bags on the bus. If you don't do that, think of that tiny subliminal message. If you're leaving that door open, that maybe we're coming back to the hotel. So little psychological ploy bags were on the bus. We plan to win that game and go home and when Jason Terry's shot hit off the rim, there it was. It had happened. The Heat win four straight games. The euphoria, you know, it was one of the most surreal experiences of my lifetime, and I think in Heat franchise history, to not only win the championship, to win it on the road. It's so singular and individual, and it's just the team out there doing it with no help from the fans. Uh, it was such a personal victory for that team. And, you know, it was, yeah two things I want to tell you. One, we ended up going back to the hotel, but for a championship victory party. Okay. That was the only way to go back to the hotel and the bag stayed on the bus. The champagne did not. So they had that all set up and that, and that was great. But for me, I, since maybe the year before we, Ed Philomia and Ted Ballard in our organization came up with this idea that I would call playoff games because once you got past a certain round, local TV's out, national TV takes over. But I would do these fake broadcasts that they would tape and use for archives. And you hear sound bites dropped in of my championship call in 06 was a fake call. But it's, it's now part of the, the fabric when we review those games. So I'm glad I didn't come up with the idea, but I'm, I'm even gladder that they did because it kept me involved. I was broadcasting that game from the upper skyboxes in Dallas. We, I felt like I was on the moon watching that game. And I was there with a, a Heat employee by the name of Jason Cohen. And the Heat win this game, and I'm all the way up in the sky, and now i got to get to the floor for the uh, ceremony. And I think Jason Cohen feared for both our lives because I could not contain my, my joy and euphoria of the moment. It was a, a dangerous ride down the escalators to get to the floor of, of the arena. And when I got there and the stage was set up for, for the championship celebration, you know, of all the things Tony Fiorentino has done for me, and they have been plentiful over 30 years of knowing Tony, this was by far the best thing he ever did. I saw Tony standing on the back of the stage with the team, and I said, man, if the coach is up there, I'm jumping up there with them. So for that first championship, only time this has happened, Tony and I were on the back of the stage. Nobody saw us, but we felt like we were right there with this team we, with, that we both started with. Uh, it was a special moment that uh, I'm sure we'll both remember for the rest of our lives. Yeah, that team was uh, was was pretty incredible. Again, the way that they came together, the way that Dwayne pushed them over the end line, and like you mentioned, Zoe's part in it, which uh, felt right for him to be part of the first championship after everything we talked about on the last podcast that that he'd been through um, when the Heat and Knicks played those four straight years, and and Zoe took those losses so hard during that period of time. So, really, was a remarkable team, and I think a team, Eric, honestly, um, that that doesn't get talked about 
quite enough, you know, because we, we've seen, obviously, you know, teams that, that win multiple championships, um, you know, there's a lot of conversation about them after the fact. But but again, that year and, and everything that they, they dealt with and the coaching change and getting Shaq back and, and then putting it together in the playoffs, I remember even you go back to the first round of that uh, of that playoff run, you know, they were in Chicago, and I remember uh, Dwayne and Gary Payton getting in an argument on the court, and there was a question about whether or not they were even going to win their first-round series, and then to end up winning a championship uh, was very unlikely with that team. All right, let's transition, though, to, to sort of that post-championship era. And, you know, that team with a lot of veterans, it didn't work out quite so well the next year. Um, a lot of those guys then the year after were gone. I just wanted to do sort of a fun exercise with you, Eric, cause, as a broadcaster, because I, I could imagine that that one of the more challenging years you might have had to deal with was was the year that didn't go so well. The 2007-2008 season when the Heat, you know, shuffled through, I, I believe it was 22 or 23 different players and, and only won 15 games. How does your approach as a broadcaster, does it change at all during a season like that? And how how did you approach that? Because you had to tell stories about, I mean, guys like Kasib Powell and Earl Barron and Blake Ahern and Stefan Lazmi. I mean, I, I know some of these names are probably in the deep recesses of your mind right now, but how did you handle that year? Well, it's funny. Uh, you, you know, I think anybody that, that writes or broadcasts for a team – uh, knows what I'm going to say now is the truth. You have to do your best work in seasons like that. And what I try to do is is never be uh, either arrogant or embarrassed about the season the team you work for is having. What you do is embrace each team and each season and tell the story of, of that season. Now, that was that was a unique season. I mean – after what we had just experienced, to see it fall that far, that fast, you know, a humbling turn and, and, and you know, reinforcement of a lesson that you know nothing, you know, in this life or in this league lasts for too long or, or forever. So I, I remember Tony and I would tell one night we got into a conversation about the value of fish oil. Okay, so we had to fill a lot of time. Um, <laughs> I, 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 one of my philosophies when you're working with a losing team, and by the way, 15 wins is what we had in our first season. Okay, so this you you could have that as an expansion team. There, trust me, there's nothing longer than an 82 game season where you only win 15 games. But uh, I, I felt like we had a good season broadcasting, Tony and I, and we just we just did the games and told the stories of these personalities that that were just passing through, and that's about all I remember out of that. I remember the, that they retired Ron Culp's put a banner up at the end of that 15 win season. And, and it was sort of a surreal post game, uh, post 82 game party of just relief that this, this long and difficult 15 win season that had just ended. I look back at that 2008, 2009 season that Dwayne had. And when you just look at the numbers, uh, LeBron was the MVP, but Dwayne could have been the MVP that season. If you look at what he produced and over the course of those two years, he had so many moments, Eric, that I'm sure you remember fondly the this is my house and the double overtime. I may, may have been a triple overtime game against Utah at home. There, there were just a string of games where Dwayne oh, was yeah. playing at a level that really we always talk about the 2006 finals, but the level he played at over a two year period was arguably the best stretch of his career. As you mentioned, he didn't have a ton of help on those two teams, but no, uh, but, no. but, but what sticks out I mean, to you at Beasley at Shaq, you know, at the end, um, you know, for part of the season, Sean Marion came over, Haslam Chalmers, Daquan cook, uh, you know, Dwayne was so powerful that year. I mean, he averaged 30 points, seven and a half assists, five rebounds, two steals, played 39 minutes a game. I mean, this was a great year for Wade. Now, you know, I got the page open. I wouldn't remember this off the top of my head. But, you know, there was a week in March. Wade had 48 in a double overtime win against Chicago. And then two games later, you just mentioned it, the triple overtime win against the Jazz, 140 to 129, Wade scored 50. So it was a, a you know a special year in the career of Dwayne Wade uh, for sure. A lot of people sort of think in retrospect he should have won the MVP that season, and it, it is kind of crazy that his prime years were sort of spent in sort of those because po- I mean year three is still you can classify it as pre-prime, even if he's scoring forty points a game and wins in the NBA Finals. But kind of those next four years after that, 
Heat fans will remember them because obviously that's when you fall in love with a player like Dwayne Wade, but kind of lost in the context of NBA history because they weren't on teams they were really competing at that high of a level. But would you say, Eric, that those were Dwayne's best years? Well, statistically, they certainly were as an individual performer. And, you know, it's a great lesson for any player, but very few get to experience what Dwayne went through to, to be at that elite level, one of the great players in the world. And you're with a team that you don't have enough to win a championship with. And I think that those years helped Dwayne Wade be ready to be a prime guy on a championship team because you can remember in his evolution and his climb, you know, leading the league in scoring was great. You know, winning a championship's better, even if you're scoring less. And I think that was the lesson learned for Dwayne Wade. And I think he was always about winning. But listen, every player wants to be the best that they can be. And at that point in Dwayne Wade's career, on this ascent to stardom, you know, at a certain point, that wasn't enough. It did not satiate or, or please Dwayne Wade. He wanted more. And then he got more But when he became part of one of the great trios in the history of the league. What I'll always remember about that, Eric, it was the locker room in Boston and then the postgame presser that Dwayne had after they lost that series in uh, in 2010 and Dwayne coming out and saying, you know, I need help and saying that yeah. very, very clearly in that press conference that the two years and, you know, he, he kept talking about my belief is stronger than your doubt. That was the slogan during those days. And he'd certainly proven that he was an elite guy, a top three guy in the league at that point, but definitely needed help. And and so then the transition to the summer of, of 2010 and where were you? Where did you watch LeBron's uh, interview with Jim Gray? I mean, and, and take us through that a little bit in terms of how you knew this was going to be different. It's funny. I knew we'd get into the, to the story of the recruitment and the, and the reality of the big three. One of the great projects I've ever had the privilege of working on as a member of the Miami Heat I've done it many times since, but this was the first time I was ever a part of it. It's one of the great examples of the basketball side of the heat and the business side of the heat combining to make a magical presentation. Pat Riley entrusted to Michael McCullough and his great staff of people the opportunity to be involved with making videos that the heat are going to put on iPads and send to the free agents. Okay, this is a number of years ago, so it was, it was a little bit of ahead of its time for the Heat to, to be that slick with it. And, you know, it was the first time that I came to grips as I got to write some of the pieces that were on that and voice some of them, and they were directed, pointed vignettes with the Heat sales pitch. And I got a sneak preview of it and got a feel for what was going to be, what they, those players would be looking at. And it was the first time that I really started to believe that that could happen. I mean, nobody in their right mind going into that thought the Heat were coming out of it with, with LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade. Yet, I mentioned the clairvoyance of Pat Riley. He saw the opportunity two years ahead of time. So it was special to prepare for that and be a part of the behind-the-scenes effort that helped open the door of that. I mean, I just thought it was really cool. But where was I the night LeBron was with Jim Gray? I was, I was sitting in my bedroom with my wife, and we watched it on TV, and we had no idea the outcome. And I don't want to say this, but that might be the happiest I've ever been in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm happy there. But that, that, was, that was a special, special moment in time where the only thing I could compare it to was the day Pat Riley was announced as the Heat head coach. Because as that move did, so did this elevate the Heat to not only a national team, but to a team on, on the world stage. And this was one of the great free agent coups of all time. I often said back then that, that other franchises should study the moves that Pat Riley made in the two years leading up to, to the summer of 2010 to see how you can manipulate free agency to the max. I, I thought it was artful and masterful. And uh, to see that come together, you know, of course, we all remember the night that they were introduced at the arena. And we had this sold-out pep rally that was so spontaneous and really loosely, a little bit loosely planned because it all was just happening as, as, as fast as time goes by. And, 
you know, Jose Pineda, the Spanish radio voice of the Heat, and myself were the MCs of this event when LeBron and Bosch and Wade all got introduced. The crazy thing was it, it was not supposed to be televised nationally. Somehow ESPN got the feed, and this thing, instead of just being our local event, became something the whole country saw. And I was the fool that asked LeBron question, the, the question. I teed it up for him for the not one, not two, not three. And I would have forgotten that, but a local radio personality by the name of Joe Rose here in Miami has played that clip many times, and it brings to mind that I was the person that asked LeBron, like, what did you really come here for? It was the start of what was, you know, the Heatles and an amazing four years of, of this franchise and of NBA history. All right, I have multiple follow-ups on that, but I'll start first with the pep rally because you mentioned that's the happiest you've ever been in your bedroom. I, like, stood up and started screaming <laughs> at my television because of how excited I was the night of the decision, and then I scrambled. I went with my brother and a friend to that pep rally. I actually ended up in the montage for Sports Center that night as, like, one of the cheering fans in the crowd. So sort of take us through how that whole thing came together and then obviously you mentioned I think it was on heat.com and that's how ESPN probably got the feed but that has become one of the iconic clips but what is that are you like running through with LeBron Wade and Bosch yeah, okay here's what we're gonna do what were you kind of told about what was no. gonna happen and then also and then also because they had to sign their contracts before they can go up and do that right like they had to work all the cab machinations out we were sort of isolated Jose and I and uh Michael Biamonte you know there were other MC, you know, hosts that were running part of this, this show. DJ Iree, I think, was there. And Jose and I are standing on the back of the stage saying, like, the, you know, they, Jeff Crane, listen, the Heat's always organized. But this was sort of this open-ended thing, like, when are they coming out? What are we going to do? It was not a uh, tightly scripted event. So it was really spontaneous, and I, I think it came off as that. The energy was pure. The joy was pure. Um, it was an amazing night. It really was. By the way, I, I do want to amend one thing I said. I, I thought of another happier moment that I had in my bedroom, and this is a, a short, true story. The day that we found out my wife was pregnant with my 12-year-old daughter, uh, we were older parents at the time. It was like a, a three-point shot at the buzzer. Could we have another child? And we had caller ID on our TV set. We had gone to the doctor's office that morning, and they said, hey, we're going to call you back. And, and, if, and, and the nurse said, if it's good news, it'll be earlier in the day. And myself, my wife, and my oldest daughter are sitting in the bedroom, and as fate would have it, the phone rings. And at that time, we had caller ID on our TV set, and the doctor's office came up. And to be honest, we had that phone call, learning that my wife, Sonid, was pregnant with our third and this precious child. That was an even happier moment. But that LeBron moment, special. It was 1B on the the list of moments. Yes, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> Not that my All wife right. and Dario so, would ever hear this story, but I had to set the record straight. No problem. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. And the other thing I wanted to ask you is, I mean, we've had some statute of limitations. Tell us about what the pitch was. Tell us about what your kind of involvement was and, and the details of what Pat Riley was selling to these guys. What, what was part of that iPad presentation? What can you tell us? Well, from my recollection of it, what, you know, one, one, there were, you know, five, six different pieces on it. One was about, you know, Miami as a city. Okay, extolling the virtues of what South Florida was all about. An economic person breaking down, you know, the differences with no state income tax. One, I still have the scripts on my computer somewhere. The history of trios, you know, some of the great trios in NBA history, the, the championship teams with the Lakers and the Celtics, and, and we brought to life some of those iconic images from the past. I don't remember anything more specific about it, but that was the general nature of this. It, it hit on specific things that definitely struck home with, with, I think, all three of those players. As organized as the effort was, from the top down, from the vision of Pat Riley to the financial commitment and really wanting to be a champion from the owner, Mickey Arison. Okay, so you can't win a championship unless you have those two pieces in place, maybe even contend for a championship. That was in place. And yet there's still an element of luck and good fortune. And I think one of the Heat's great fortunes, uh, you know, not only drafting Dwayne Wade, he grows as a superstar right here in Miami. And he was the magnetic recruiting pitch of them all because they came to Miami to play with Dwayne. That was probably the greatest accomplishment of, of it all, that it didn't happen anywhere else, that it happened here. And I think Dwayne Wade was the most magnetic reason for that. 
so that team then starts to play, and they end up, you know, everybody's saying they're going to win 70 games. I think uh, Jeff Van Gundy said they'd break the all-time record of 72 games, and they start 9-8 and eight that first year, and there were a lot of controversies with that team. It seemed like every day there was something else. The national media was descending on that team on a constant basis. Everything that they said was scrutinized and blown up. I know as a broadcaster, you're focused on the game, but how much of the swirl sort of did, did you pay attention to during that period of time? And did you think that that team was treated fairly the way that they were approached by sort of outsiders? No, I, I think that people resented it much like the resentment that, you know, the NBA in the sports world laid on Kevin Durant. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game. I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Miami Heat. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And when he went to Golden State, this did not sit well with the rest of the NBA. Everybody was wondering, how did Miami pull this off? And I think there was some jealousy and some envy. And, uh, you know, that's the way people looked at it. And that's what I think really brought Heat Nation together in a way that it had not been brought together ever before it was us against the world and we had the we had the people that could take on a a task like that so I did think it was unfair I didn't think Pat Riley and those players ever got the credit they truly deserved what I loved about what LeBron and Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade did you know was sort of San Antonio-esque of stars sacrificing to win championships and to come together like that Certainly Chris Bosh and Dwayne Wade made great sacrifices with how many shots and how many points they were able to get. When you play with LeBron, that's part of the package. And LeBron's sacrifice was, you know, leaving his hometown and taking on all the criticism that he took on. And he's the one that took on the brunt of the heat and the hate. I don't think any of us will ever forget. And I wasn't at the the first game that the heat played at Cleveland with LeBron. That was a national TV game that one of the few games we weren't at. But we all remember the hate and, mm-hmm. and the awful behavior shown by Cavaliers fans to LeBron in that game. So it was very much the heat against the rest of the world. Yeah, I was at that game, Eric. I'll never forget it. I was there for actually a couple days before the game, and I remember going around the city to write a story about how fans were going to welcome or not welcome LeBron. And any of the sports bars that you went to that are around the queue, when you went to use the bathroom and you used a urinal – staring up at you as a urinal cake was LeBron's face with his mouth open. I mean, that's what they were doing in that wow. town. They wow. were pay- they were giving out 25-cent shots in the bars for the best LeBron joke that you could tell. And then we got to the arena yeah. that night, and we ended up, you know, we started to see some batteries fly. And uh, I, I remember watching the end of that game from the press room. It wasn't sort of deemed safe to be out there. No, it was, uh, a, the it was a vile, a vile time. And um, I thought one of the worst behaviors I've ever seen by a fan base was the way the people of Cleveland, I could understand being disappointed. But the hate that came out 
when you look back on those times and you think that LeBron is with Cleveland now, it is remarkable that he returned. Uh, you know, that's a whole other set of circumstances. But I, I think going back to that first year with, with the big three in Miami, Ethan, you sort of set the, the stage of what the temperature was like with the predictions of, of 70 wins and even the notion, I think, from those three guys. I think there was probably something inside of all of them that felt like maybe this will be easy and we've got it made. And they won a lot of games, but they weren't ready to win a championship. And when they got to the finals against Dallas, it's the only time of the big three era. And this, this is no secret. Everybody saw it happen. You know, when the Heat finally lost that sixth game of that series, I'm sitting in the upper press box and, and I'm realizing with about six to eight minutes left in that last game that, you know, the reality of, wow, we're, we're not only going to lose to this Dallas team that talent-wise was inferior, we're going to lose at home. We're going to lose the championship on our home floor. Now, we've won a championship on the road. There's no greater joy. Conversely, there's no greater pain than losing in a finals game to lose the championship at home. That, that's a stain that could never be washed out. And I just remember feeling at that moment of that game, wow, the moment was too big for this gigantic team we had. And it's not our time. It was Dallas's time. It's hard to explain how, you know, how the series changed when they started Jose Barea. Jose Barea went to Miami Christian and in Miami, I mean, now comes back and is a key guy. Like this role player becomes this giant figure and, in these finals, you know, it was an excellent move by Rick Carlisle. Why Berea gave LeBron and the Heat so many problems. But I think, it, I think it all goes back to the element inside of them, thinking this is going to be easier to win a championship. And as painful as it was to lose in the finals that first year, I can't help but feel that it set the groundwork for what was to come. And that was you know, the back-to-back championships, and it very well could have been three in a row. But I think losing in that first round really set it up to be dynastic. And it would have been had LeBron not left. I think they had a chance to do what Cleveland's doing now, make repeated runs to the finals. But uh, as painful as it was, it was definitely a step in the right direction to show the Heat it's never easy to win a championship, uh, even with three great players. Yeah, and, and the thing that I'll, I'll always remember about that first finals was, well, the first playoff run was first off, you know, the, the, the thing that kind of gets lost to history a little bit is that the Heat were the two seed in those playoffs because Chicago had had such a good run, and it was kind of setting up for that big conference finals matchup between Miami and then Derrick Rose after he won the MVP when a lot of people thought LeBron should have won it, and then the Heat go out. I think they I think they lost game one and then won four straight, and then Udonis Haslam turns in that ridiculous performance off of the injury, although actually it probably in the end probably harmed the rest of his career that he came back too early from that injury. And then you mentioned the fact that they weren't, they weren't ready to win a championship, and yet you remember... Remember in game two, they're, they're, they're leading 1-0, and then they go into a TV timeout up 15 right. with seven minutes to play in the fourth quarter. And premature celebration right in front of the Dallas right. bench. I mean, And I remember at home prematurely celebrating. I thought that win was done and dusted. By the, by the way, the Chicago thing, Chris, I'll never forget the feeling at the United Center. Uh, the Heat went on an amazing run to close the, the clinching game, and you could have heard a pin drop in Chicago. They could not believe what had happened to them. It was one of the most amazing comebacks and, and road victories uh, you know, in, in the history of the franchise. I didn't realize, too, that it was such a low-scoring game. It finished 83-80. And the, and the Heat had to come back from uh, from down by a pretty big margin. I remember Chris because it was one of my it was one of my worst deadline writing experiences because I I, I, I had written a column basically about how they'd squandered their opportunity and they were going to have to go home and finish it there. And then that was one of the more that I think that one gets lost a little bit in the big three era. What happened? No, it does. It does that, Be- that, because that you know what happened. Time. We we're witnessing Ethan the Heat becoming. The Michael Jordan Bulls. We were breaking teams' hearts and spirits and crushing other fan bases with you know spectacular wins, home and road. So the team had developed a grit and a, and a toughness, and uh, it was an amazing run. It really was. I'll always remember that post game locker room too, because there was a scene in Miami 
that was going on at that time. And the players had it on a television in the visiting locker room in the United Center. And they were watching them. And, and I remember LeBron and Dwayne screaming that, that Miami was going ham. That was, that was what they were screaming in the locker room. So uh, it really was a great experience and really emotional for Dwayne, too, uh, to win in Chicago. I remember him being the most emotional person in that locker room. But as Chris said, I want to transition a little bit to the two championships. And I know some of it bleeds together here a little bit. But what's, what strikes me, Eric, is when you look back at that first team that they beat in the finals, and again, getting past Boston and Indiana, obviously, during that period of time was always challenging. But that first finals against Oklahoma City, where when you look back at that team that the Thunder had that year, when you had on the same team three guys who, who are going to be league MVPs, uh, with Durant and Westbrook already winning and Harden likely to win this year, what stands out to you about that first championship with LeBron in 2012? Well, first, I, I think the first thing that stands out was the series against Indiana in the conference semifinals, a series, you know, it's funny, we were just in Indiana recently. I was talking with Mark Boyle, their radio announcer, Chris Denary, their TV voice, and we were recollecting, you know, how great a rivalry that was. Remember, the Heat took out Indiana, I think it was basically three years in a row, twice twice in conference finals and once in the, in the conference semifinals. This was the conference semifinals in 2012. James scored 40 in game five. Uh, he had 30 in game six. Wade had 41 with 10 assists in game seven. And then you go to the Boston series. You know, another amazing series. The Heat go up 2-0, and then they lose three straight. And do you remember how deflating it was, a 94-90 loss in, in game five at home to fall behind in the series three games to two, and now you're going back to Boston for game six, and very few people thought the Heat had a chance to win that game. I mean, Again, they had just lost three games in a row in that series to the Garnett, Rondo, Paul Pierce. This was a terrific Celtics team, and this was as good a conference final as, as I could ever remember. And I think it was you know, maybe the greatest single performance that I've ever witnessed a Heat player have. LeBron in game six at Boston, you know, 45 points. He had 15 rebounds. An unbelievable performance in a win or, or die game. I just remember the, I, I think I still have it on, on one of my laptops as a screensaver, that glare that LeBron James had, that glare, that stare, that determination, that talent, uh, and it turned into an incredible performance. And we remember how great Rondo and, and the Celtics played in that series. And then the Heat came back and, and won game seven handily just to get to the finals. So I'll never forget the conference finals against Boston. Truly a spectacular series. You go to the, the, the NBA finals, and I remember seeing game one, a game that was winnable for the Heat, and they wind up losing by 11, and uh, they won the next four. Just steamrolled the Thunder. And it was obviously telling and important for Miami to, to win that championship, second in the history of the franchise. It was unraveling for Oklahoma City. I mean, they never really gave the Durant-Westbrook-Harden trio enough time. James Harden was a young player. He had an awful final against Miami. He wasn't ready to be a champion, nor were they. They were great, and they weren't great enough to beat Miami. And then Oklahoma City, more for financial reasons, felt they couldn't keep all three, and they let Harden go and probably, you know, self-induced themselves to not winning a championship with those three guys. So uh, a real strong fork in the road for, for those two franchises there. We should probably, before we get to the Spurs final, get to the 27-game win streak and kind of your memories of that because that was probably in terms of the time that the big three Heat were at the peak of their powers was during that 23-game win streak. Just kind of your memories, and, and Ethan, I'll ask you the same question. As you're talking about, I'm flashing back to streaks that caught the, the imagination of the whole country. There's an inscription on the inside of, of the championship ring from that year that commemorates that winning streak. You know, it was an amazing run of, of the Heat playing some of the greatest basketball, maybe the greatest basketball we'll ever see, you know, from a Heat team ever to, to win that many games. I hate to admit to this, but when the win streak ended, my wife and daughter flew into Chicago to see that game, and uh, that was a game we lost. <laughs> but all streaks have to end, but that, you know, was a very memorable sort of sidebar to what turned out to be a championship season, so pretty special. 
That was as good as I've ever seen LeBron play uh, in a Heat uniform was over that period of time. If you look back at the numbers that he put up during that stretch, and Dwayne was great too, but what was remarkable about that streak was how many times they had to try to save it. Uh, the game in Cleveland where they were down, I think, 27, and I remember Shane and, and LeBron oh, yeah. hitting those threes to bring them back. Look, there were some blowouts during that stretch, but there were also some games where it was pretty clear they just did not want to let this thing and, and and it was just as, as organized as I've ever seen a Heat team, too. I mean, Eric had his very set nine-man rotation. Uh, he went to it every night, and they just overwhelmed people. Um, the other thing about that that sticks out to me, Eric, was Chris Anderson, you know, his addition. Because people forget, before the 27-game winning streak that year, the Heat were having some problems rebounding. Uh, I remember uh, being in Portland where Le- LeBron was asked if they even had enough talent on this team, if they had enough bigs. He said they did, but he didn't seem real convincing. And and then they had the signing of Chris Anderson and like they never lost again. Like it was, you know, I, I know you've seen a lot of players who've come and fit in with the Miami Heat. and We've talked about some of them, but the fit of Chris Anderson with the Heat, uh, again, I think something that goes overlooked a little bit about about that particular team. Yeah, he was an infectious personality. He was perfect for the Heat because he brought defensive energy rebounding energy and just a real good spirit to the Heat. Yeah, I'm looking back at, at some of those games in that streak. Started February 3rd at Toronto. I think the craziest game might have very well been a triple overtime win in late February against Sacramento at home. Uh, They took the streak personally. Uh, There was also a one-point win against Orlando at home in in the streak. The Cleveland game is probably the best one, though, right? Yeah, the three-point win at Cleveland. Some very impressive games. But you saw the – you know, it's funny. you, You could see it with another team maybe even more objectively than you felt it as you were going through it. As we're going through it, it's the greatest thing ever. I mean, there's pressure and intensity on every single game, but it can be diffusing because the real energy is about trying to win a championship and to put that much emotion into a regular season win streak, there's a chance that it could be counterproductive and and take some air out of you when it ends. But it ended late in the season, and, and basically the Heat lost two games the rest of the season. You know, the game at Chicago and then a home game at New York. But it was an incredible end of that season. I mean, from February 3rd to April 17th, you know, only two losses. So probably the most memorable team in the history of the franchise. 66 wins, most victories ever. And, you know, you remember it takes seven games to get through Indiana. LeBron was incredible in, in those conference finals. And then the finals against the Spurs. I mean, you could tell stories for an hour about that series. Uh, You know, I I would put that up with any championship series in NBA history. And what I would insist on is that this be included in a conversation of greatest finals in NBA history. I'm I'm not going to insist that it is, because obviously that's subjective. But I think it clearly is in the conversation of, of most memorable, highest level of play, greatest games, exciting moments, you know, iconic moments for Miami, two, you know, state-of-the-art franchises. I mean, Greg Popovich and the Spurs, Pat Riley's Miami Heat, even though Coach Spo was coaching at that time, uh, you know, two great franchises, Hall of Fame players on both sides, and games that lived up to all of it and, and even exceeded it. All right, the big one, of course, is the Ray Allen shot, though. What are your memories of that? Well, my memories is, you know, we, we did a, an Inside the Heat show about those final 23 seconds or whatever. I forget the exact time of it when the Heat are down by five. All the things that transpired in those closing seconds. It was, you know, everybody remembers they, the arena security put that yellow tape, you know, around the court. We're getting ready to go through this finals nightmare of, you know, getting beat at home again to lose a championship and your heart is sinking and you're thinking like, Oh no, we got to watch the Spurs celebrate a championship here. Uh, and now, and it, there are pictures in the heat locker room in championship alley. They're my two, two of my favorite pictures of Chris Bosch getting the rebound. Remember they took Tim Duncan out. I'm not second guessing it, but it did weaken their rebounding position. Chris Bosch, you know, this terrific two handed rebound and when you look at the picture when Bosch is rebounding the ball, Ray Allen is within two feet of him. I mean, he's right there. And probably the most instinctive move I've ever seen a player make, especially during a game as important as that, when he backpedals to the baseline corner 
and never even looks to check his feet. Ray used to go through drills like this after practice of laying on the floor, getting up and running to a spot. You know, Bill Bradley, the, the former Nick and former U.S. Senator and Rhodes Scholar from Princeton, he wrote a book that I read as a, as a kid called The Sense of Where You Are, and it almost talks about that, that innate feel for where you are in life or on the court. And Ray Allen certainly had a sense of where he was, never checked, quickly backpedaled to the corner. Bosch made a perfect pass with Ginobili going for the rebound, Allen quickly backpedaling to that corner and making that shot. And what people forget, you know, about that great shot, all it did was tie the game. And the Heat had to go to overtime to win the game. So uh, it took more great plays than that, but that was the play that did it. And, of course, Ray Allen, who was pretty well known around the Heat locker room, of never using a curse word. I remember talking to his wife about this. Ray never swears. And when he made that shot, he looked over at the ushers and said, get that blank and tape out of here. So, wow, <laughs> powerful, powerful moment. I remember having a conversation with Ray the next training camp when we were in the Bahamas. And he, he basically put it this way. He said that shot was the culmination of everything that I did in my career, that all of yes. the preparation, everything, as you mentioned, the innate ability to know where he had to be on the floor, where his feet had to be so he wouldn't step out, what the clock situation was, that all of it was based on all of the preparation he did over the course of his career. So really is a, a remarkable moment. Eric, we want to transition here to give you an opportunity, uh, you know, because obviously there's a lot more memories that, that may be created with this with this current team. We'll see where that goes, and certainly you're going to be with them well into the future. But I wanted to give you the opportunity to look back on your broadcasting career a little bit and at the partners that you've worked with over the course of time and, and what they've meant to you. So I guess to speak a little bit here on Dr. Jack, obviously, who, who had such an impact on the organization, but what those years were like working with Jack Rand. Well, thank you for giving me the chance to speak about that. You know, the, before I get into that, the one, uh, you know, I mentioned there were two defensive plays in the history of the franchise that just are closest to my heart. Um, the Chris Bosch closeout on Danny Green um, down at the Spurs end. Um, that could have won the game for the Spurs, and Bosch came from all the way on the other side of the court and, and, and made it, like, you know, just blocked the shot and made it impossible. I, I thought it was the greatest closeout in the 30-year history of the franchise. I, I listen. I've been, you know, so blessed to 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 be to be a guy out there announcing college basketball with with a dream of someday doing that at the NBA level. Listen, it's it's nearly impossible to land one of these jobs. You have to have talent, but you also have to be fortunate. And I was I, I was definitely, uh, you know, fortunate in in getting a job with the Heat 30 years ago. Uh, I've always had I've I've had eight or nine different partners. I, I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. Um, you know, Sam Smith was my original partner uh, when I was doing color for the first three years. Sam was an experienced veteran play-by-play -play guy. I learned a lot of organizational things from Sam. Uh, Dave Wool was my next partner, you know, a guy who was played at Penn. Um, I was so familiar with Dave's background, Eastern College basketball, NBA player. Coach, I remember when he coached the Nets. Uh, it was really fun. That was the first playoff year, and I got to share that with Dave, and he later went on to become the general manager of the Heat. So a uh, very neat experience. In working with Ed Pinckney for a short time, I, it was great. Ed was on our 96-97 team, uh, one of the more special teams in Heat history. And when I got to, I got to know Ed then. Funny, that, that's the year I got to know John Crotty as well. John was also on that 96-97 team. But in working with Ed, uh, it was a real treat because you got to work with you know, one of, the, one of the most iconic figures in college basketball history for what his Villanova did, team did to win the championship over Patrick Ewing in Georgetown. And what I got to know about Ed that year we worked together was just exactly why he was a, a favorite guy in every locker room he ever played in or for, because he's a terrific guy. And now he's with Tom Thibodeau as an assistant with Minnesota, and we've remained close over the years. Working with Mike Fratello, you know, a treat because of his, you know, magnetic, warm, Really great personality, uh, another great coaching mind. Uh, we enjoyed a year and a half together. But, you know, when I think about it, this is the, the truth now. For 23 of my 30 years, I've either been sitting next to Dr. Jack Ramsey or Tony Fiorentino. Jack and I shared eight seasons and over 500 games together. Um, in Jack, you're talking about, you know, a championship coach with Portland in 1977, 
a Hall of Fame coach, um, and an even better person. And, and we got Jack during a time in his life where he was done with the stress of coaching. Um, he was, you know, a golden person to be with. One of, one of the greatest people, maybe one of the most important, one of the greatest people I've ever been around, his, his positive nature, um, his, his bent toward fitness. He was ahead of his time with that. He set a great example for me and in what to strive for, especially as you, as you get older, keeping your body in shape. And I was going through a real rough time in my own personal life when I was working with Jack. Uh, for me, that was a time when I went through uh, the loss of two children uh, with my first wife and, and, and then a, div- a, a divorce. And I always looked at Jack as sort of my lighthouse during some dark, stormy nights, uh, having a rock like Jack Ramsey, uh, to, to be with, uh, was, was great comfort. And that partnership, when it ended, it broke my heart. I understood that, that it was time for Jack to, to do national games and, and work a little less, but, uh, you know, for anybody old enough, uh, to the Jack, to remember the Jack Ramsey days, you know, I, you know, Jack did color for a short time with Philadelphia before he came to the heat. And when Jack joined us, um, you know, it was still the Kevin Lockery era. The, the Reed-Ramsey broadcast duo, you know, started in the Lockery era and then began with Pat Riley coming. So we got to bridge those years. And, you know, some all these years later, Jack has, has passed away. Uh, we stayed in close touch after he left the heat. You know, myself, Tony Fiorentino, Jose Pineda, and a number of other heat people, we did go over to Naples for his funeral a few years back. I think it's one of the things I'm most honored that, you know, talk about, I've only spoken at a, at a, maybe three funerals in my life. And at Jack Ramsey's funeral, I was one of the speakers. And, and I made sure that Bill Shonley, who was Jack's radio play by play guy in Portland, he, he was the lone trailblazer person that had made the trip, uh, for the funeral. And, uh, he got to speak as well. Um, you know, tough, Tough to lose him as a partner, tougher to lose him from, from this world because the world is, is a lesser place without Jack Ramsey in it. But his warmth, his, first of all, he was so entertaining, way more so, and I, I think the Heat created this opportunity for Jack where he really evolved as a personality, this not only knowledgeable man, but a man with such great integrity and warmth. I used to love watching Jack do interviews after the game, and even more so without the camera and mic on him, the way he would interact not only with Heat players but with players around the league. He took such pride and, and shared joy and knowledge and insight. Uh, he related to players young and old and, and was a, an amazing person to be around. And now, you know, the last 15 years working with Tony Fiorentino, um, a real gift for, for, for both of us. Um, for me, first of all, I, you know, I met Tony in the first year of the franchise. Tony was, we had a lot in common. We were both from New York State. Uh, Tony was a great high school basketball coach at Mount Vernon. That's where he first got to know Ron Rossi. And I was very close with Ron and Tony from the very first year of the franchise. Ron, I told you about the extraordinary access he gave me. So from that first year uh, and through the first 15 years, Tony was my best friend on that coaching staff. And he started filling in the second year that Mike Fratello was working with us and missing games for national assignments. And to work with Tony, first of all, you know, when Jason Jackson introduces us often nights, he'll say, and now to the Heat Originals. And we're both really humble guys who, who love the game and love our team and always put the game and our team first. Um, so easy to do games with him. We, it, I think it's the one thing that both of us take equal pride in um, is that we are, we were the only, we, you know, as this year finishes up, we are the only broadcast team in the league where both announcers are original employees of the franchise. And it's hard to let go of that. First of all, when you're really that friendly with the guy you're working with, that, that's a rare thing. It, it, usually you're not working with somebody that's really in your life, one of your best friends. And Tony's a little bit older than me, so he's always been like that older brother uh, that I didn't have. We have shared some of the the best we've shared the best times in the history of the franchise uh sitting alongside um i don't know we respect the game both of us and um you know to be able to interact with coaches and players and officials from every team in the league we we feel like we're heat ambassadors and we also i think we both take pride in in telling the other team's story 
as intelligently and, and as well as we can. And, and Tony's, you know, had a, an extraordinary commitment. Um, you know, for me, this is my only job for a lot of color guys. Uh, they're involved with a lot of other things. Uh, and, and Tony has given 100% of himself over a 15 year period of time, actually over 30 years, but over 15 years, he's never missed a game. Um, he brings his passion and energy all the time. Anybody that knows Tony knows how, how he loves the heat and he loves, you know, being able to tell, help tell the story of, of the history of the franchise as it unfolds. So it's hard to say goodbye to this partnership. I, I, I'm really glad that, you know, it appears the heat are going to the playoffs because it, you know, it's going to be hard to let go of this. And I felt like the only fitting way is for us to do the first round together. And that's, that's the only round you get to do on local TV now. And I'm glad that uh, we're going to get, you know, that's going to be Tony's parting gift as, as a playoff round. And uh, I know he's going to appreciate it. There's going to be a special night at the end of the season for Tony. I think the last game of the season, there's going to be a halftime ceremony honoring him. And uh, I, I think not just from me, I think he'll be missed uh, by, by, by the Heat fan base. And I, I think of all the, not only the games we've shared, I haven't counted them up, but it's got to be over a thousand games. And he, he almost doubled Jack Ramsey's tenure. He's the longest tenured analyst in, in the history of the Heat, lasting 15 years. So um, it's going to be special. We're going to enjoy every moment, and, and then we'll both uh, embrace whatever the future holds. All right, Eric. Well, thank you so much for taking the time with us to do this. Um, if After you download this episode, if you haven't listened to part one, Eric sat with Chris and I to discuss the first 15 or so years of the franchise. So, again, great stories on there about some of the other Heat originals and how this franchise developed over time. We always enjoy your work, Eric, and really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us. Guys, it, it has really been fun going back over the course of Heat history, and I know how fortunate I am to be in the position I'm in for 30 years. And you know what makes me feel even more fortunate? I love it now as much, maybe more than ever, because all the, all the experiences, the knowledge that, that, that is piled up, I, you know, I, I still enjoy each game, and, and that is a gift and a blessing that we never underestimate. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.